Did ever things not go like you expected? Happens a lot. We, we talked about a couple examples in Sunday school, like not winding up in New York City, right? I mean, broadly, I think we've all had that experience, haven't we? You know, if, if when you were in high school, well, some of us wasn't that long ago, but for everybody else, when you're in high school, if I asked you where you're going to be 40 years from now or 20 years from now, and then got to that point and said, were you right, what would the answer have been? No, for every single one of us, right? I mean, probably even for you, right? If, if I asked you, what are you, where are you going to be in three years, you just, would you have gotten it right? No. <laughs> and, but it's even more specific than that, too. Sometimes it's, it's even very specific things that we like, I've, I've got this in my head and I think I know what this is going to be like, and it isn't. That was true of my military career broadly, but it was true of every job I had in the military, too. I find out you're going to go to this place, to this ship, do this job, like operations officer on the destroyer, Curtis Wilbur. And I'm like, okay, I think I know what that means. Here's how I picture that. This is going to be great. And I get there, and it's nothing like that at all, right? Happened with my wedding. Most brides have this picture of the perfect day in their head. Guys, we, we tend to not worry as much about the details, but I want it to be good for her. And we talked about it, and we had everything all planned out. And I got up to the front of the church, and I'm standing there like this, and the preacher's right there, my best man's right here, and we're waiting for her to, to come down the aisle. We're 30 seconds from the processional. And my best man whispers, where's the ring? <laughs> and I turned white as a sheet, because it was in the glove compartment of my car. <laughs> and what do we do now? <laughs> and I turned and looked over my shoulder and said, fake it. <laughs> And then i got to figure out how to tell her. So she comes down, to, you know, do the processional, she comes down to the front, and we're starting into the ceremony, somebody's singing a solo, and I looked her in the eye and said, I forgot the ring. <laughs> and I'm terrified that she's going to break down crying and I've just ruined the whole thing. And what'd she do? She started laughing hysterically. <laughs> Uncontrollably. People are looking at us, what is wrong with you people? Because I'm standing here terrified, why is a sheet and she's laughing at me? <laughs> we faked it. The preacher didn't know. You can't see it on the video. There were only three people that knew, and as soon as we got out of the church, we immediately, I immediately ran to the car, got the ring, put it on her finger, and we showed it off at the reception, and everything's great, and nobody ever knew the difference. But it was definitely not what I expected. <laughs> the sermon this morning is not what I expected. Last week afterwards, I commented to Brother Richard that there's been some tough ones lately, and hopefully we can talk about John the Baptist in Luke chapter 7. And, and maybe, maybe talking about John the Baptist and his perceptions of Jesus won't, won't be as hard. No, no, because the gospel's hard. It's tough. It's not easy to imitate Jesus who laid down his life and went to the cross. And so if we really want to hear what he has to say and really learn what it means to be like him, it's going to be hard. It gets tough to preach just as much as it is to listen to, but it's what God says. So that's what we're going to do today. Let's talk about how John's perception of Jesus didn't match what he thought was going to happen. Again, it's in Luke chapter 7. Did I say John a minute ago? Luke chapter 7. Continuing Luke. And we can't, as we've discussed before, we can't understand this without understanding the context. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the historical context, where these expectations came from. I'm sure Brother Wayne will like the history. <laughs> And then we're going to talk a little bit about the, the context in the book of Luke, too, to understand what's going on. Because we're begin, beginning in verse 18, and it starts with that John showed these things. 
Well, what are these things? When you see a word like that as you're reading the Scripture, you better go figure out what it means or you're not going to understand what it's talking about, right? So we're going to talk about what that is. God's covenant with Israel was that He would dwell among them and be their God and be king. God is king. That's very different from the way the pagan nations around them worked. The way those nations worked, they believed their gods created them to provide food for the gods, and the gods appointed a king to represent them to maintain order so the people could provide them food. And then the gods blessed the people in return, and it's this mutually beneficial relationship. That's how the pagan nations viewed it. Israel's different. Israel's God doesn't need anything from them, and he is king. And he is going to dwell among them and be king and be God. Well, that wasn't working out so well for him, largely because they disobeyed him. Every man did what was right in his own eyes, we see in Judges. So they asked for a human king to represent God, just like the nations all around them. I think we miss that nuance because we don't understand the culture. It wasn't just they wanted a king like the other nations. They wanted a king to represent God and rule like the other nations. They didn't want just God. That's why God says to Samuel, they haven't rejected you as my prophet. They've rejected me as king. So he, he accommodated them. He gave them a king, right? First Saul, then David. Yeah, some good, some bad, but nine large. David, David was a godly man, right? But then his successors, particularly after his son Solomon, not so much. They led the people in rebellion against God, right? Complete failure. And because they didn't keep the covenant, God did exactly what he said he was going to do. They went into exile, right? But God's merciful. And he brought them back. He, he used that exile to teach them repentance and teach them his ways. And so they come back to the land of Israel and they rebuild the second, the second temple, right? But God's not dwelling among them. God is not king and they have no human king. In fact, their king is the representative of another god in another land, in Persia at that time. They're under the rule of someone else. They're slaves in their own land. It's the language Ezra uses. And they think, well, we went into exile because we broke the law. So now we'll keep the law, and then God will restore the nation. Right? It makes sense. And that's exactly what Nehemiah talks about and what Nehemiah prays, paraphrasing Moses and leaving out the important part about God changing their hearts. So that's what they try to do. They're going to keep the law and keep their part of the bargain so that then God returns to them. Because see, there's a big difference in the second temple. And I just didn't realize this a couple years ago. Did you know God wasn't there? God was present in the first temple. God was present in the tabernacle. When they dedicated them, God's glory came down. You remember at Solomon's temple dedication, the priests could not stand to minister because of the glory of God. The ark dwelt in there, and the Shekinah, the glory of God, dwelt over the mercy seat, right? What's in the... Holy of Holies in the second temple. Nothing. It's cold and dark and quiet. God's not there. Even the rabbis acknowledge that the second temple is very different. That's missing. God's presence isn't there. And so they want God to return to them, to rule, to be king, to give them a human king, to restore the kingdom to Israel. This is, this is the hope of Israel. And they did get independence under the Maccabees for about a hundred years, but they never had a king and God's presence never returned. And the infighting that occurred 
led to Rome taking back over, and they're once again slaves. And that's where we come to in the time of Jesus. And Israel's still looking for God to come and be king and free them from oppression like he freed them from oppression in Egypt. And that's what this Messiah, this king, this son of David is supposed to do. Restore the kingdom to Israel and bring God's presence back. That's the hope of Israel. I think, I'm sure you guys have heard that they were looking for the Messiah to free him from Rome, right? That's a little more to it when we understand why and the real background from it, I think. John comes as the forerunner of this Messiah. He's filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb, and he knows that this Jesus that he baptizes, that's his cousin, is the Messiah. This is the one. The time is now. And he preaches the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's right here. It's close enough for you to reach out and grab it. So, Jesus comes to John. The baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Starts preaching the kingdom of heaven is at hand too. He preaches that he's come to set the captives free. He preaches the year of Jubilee when things are restored to their rightful owners and the slaves are freed. So far, so good, right? He's doing miracles. That's awesome. It proves God is with him. Yes, this is it. Then he starts preaching, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who despitefully use you and persecute you. Which, by the way, He did on the cross. Father, forgive them. They know what, not what they do. And we just sang that Stephen did later. He starts to preach, give to everyone who asks of you. He starts to preach, when people oppress you, don't resist and fight for your rights. Help them do it. Give them the shirt off your back. And the t-shirt too. And John says, wait, 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 wait. How does that free us from Roman oppression? That doesn't sound like the Messiah. You see why he had a conflict? Do you see why when John heard these things, he wondered? Let's look at the questions he has in Jesus' response. Luke chapter 7, we'll start in verse 18. And John, calling unto him two of his disciples, sent them to Jesus, saying, Art thou he that should come, or look we for another? When the men were coming to him, they said, John Baptist hath sent us to thee, saying, Art thou he that should come, or look we for another? And in the same hour he cured many of their infirmities and plagues and evil spirits, and to many that were blind he gave sight. And Jesus answering said unto them, Go your way, and tell John what things ye have seen and heard, how that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, to the poor, the gospel is preached, and blessed is he, whosoever shall not be offended in me. See, the dead being raised is part of that context too. I skipped by that part. The passage we, we skipped over in between sermons, there's a centurion, a Roman oppressor, who has faith in Jesus. And Jesus says his faith is greater than anyone in Israel. Because he understands that Jesus is acting under the authority of the Father. And then he raises a widow's son, her only son, restoring not only her family, but her means of support. Freeing her from what was going to be a very dismal economic prospect for the rest of her life. And when John's disciples come and say, look, are you the Messiah or what? 
Jesus does just such miracles. Now, how's, how's, what's John thinking? What's John really asking here? There's a, several possibilities, and I'll, I'll do this quickly because we're going to probably be a little long today anyway. There's a lot here. But I'll, I'll, so I'll discard the ones that are skeptical of the Gospels actually being true, and this is what really happened and so forth. To me, it leaves two main possibilities, and I'm, I'm kind of up in the air. Either John really is now starting to doubt. He was operating under the power of the Holy Spirit when he said Jesus is the Messiah. And now he's in prison, his ministry's over, and now he's being human <laughs> and saying, wait a minute, was I right? That's possible. Or he may be trying to push Jesus. And he's saying, look, I know you're the Messiah. You know you're the Messiah. We all agree you're the Messiah. Are you or what? What are you doing? Trying to correct him. Like Peter did when he said, you know, no, 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 you're not going to the cross. What are you talking about? And Jesus said, get thee behind me, Satan. That, that kind of thing. I don't know. Either one fits the text. The point is, John's asking the question, right? Are you the Messiah or not, dude? What's going on here? And how's Jesus respond? First, he doesn't even answer the question. He just goes and starts healing sick people, casting out demons, making blind people see in the same hour. I mean, he, he just turned around and started doing it. And then he looks at the disciples of John and says, what you just saw, go back and tell John that. That exactly what I preached, that I'm setting the oppressed free, that's what I'm actually doing. I am the Messiah, Isaiah prophesied about. I know what I'm doing, whether you do or not. That's his answer. And then he says something that's a little cryptic to us because of language issues, and I'll, I'll get into that. He says, Blessed is the one who's not offended in me. Right? That word offended is the one we got to look at because it's another one of those cases where there's not a good English word to translate a Greek concept. Okay? It's not hard. It's just language doesn't work that way. We've talked about that before. It's a word that gets translated stumbling block, snare, offense, cause to sin. A lot of different ways, because there's not one English word that does it, and that's fine. Offense is as good as any here. It's scandalizo. It's where we get our English word scandal, or scandalize. And the best way I can explain the way it's used here is a political scandal. So, I won't get into politics this morning. I'll back up a few decades so we don't get into controversy, right? Y'all remember Richard Nixon? Was Watergate a scandal? Okay, so we can talk about that without making people too angry. <laughs> a lot of people liked Richard Nixon, right? A lot of people supported him. A lot of people voted for him as president. A lot of people worked in his campaign, and it was great. Then Watergate happens. And a lot of those people were calling for his impeachment, weren't they? Why did they suddenly stop supporting him or following him? Because of the scandal, right? So they were walking along the path he's walking, and something caused them to trip up. It grabbed their feet like a snare. It's a block in front of them. made them trip and stop walking and following him. Right? That's the, that's the picture this word paints. The point is that this bad thing that's shameful makes me go, mm, I don't want to do that anymore. And they don't keep following. Right? Just like something that causes us to sin makes us stop following Jesus. That's how the word's used that way too. So, enough of the vocabulary lesson. The point is, that's what Jesus is saying, is blessed is the one that doesn't have their own idea in their head about what I should be doing, and then see what I'm doing, and this doesn't compute, and you're offended, and you quit following me. 
You need to trust me, whether you understand it or not. And by the way, it'll probably help if you just listen and I'll tell you what I'm supposed to be doing. Don't get tripped up by what you see me doing. So do people do that today? Let's apply this. I'm real thankful for my wife. She, she corrects me from time to time, and this was one of them. Sometimes I get too lost in theology and forget to, to say, what does this mean? So That's why we may run a minute long. There's a lot of application here. Do people do this today? Do they start following Jesus, and then things don't work out the way they expected? And then they stop following Jesus? Do, do we tend to have our own expectations and then we get offended when God doesn't do it our way? And then say, well, never mind. Get mad because my kid died or my mom died or something. Or, or maybe I'm just not as rich as I am or I, I didn't get the scholarship like the example you talked about, brother. Any, you know, Whatever it is, right? People do it all the time. And the point is, exactly what we talked about in Sunday school with Joseph. Exactly what we mentioned with Job. It's God's plan. He's in control. We need to trust Him and trust that He works all things together for our good, whether it's the way we expected it or not. And not be offended that His plan doesn't match ours. So Jesus corrects John in this way, right? Is He bashing him? Is He saying He's a bad guy? No. In fact, He immediately affirms him. Let's look at verse 24. When the messengers of John were departed... He began to speak unto the people concerning John. What went ye out into the wilderness for to see? A reed shaken with the wind? But what went ye out for to see? A man clothed in soft raiment? Behold, they which are gorgeously apparelled and live delicately are in king's courts. But what went ye out for to see? A prophet? Yea, I say unto you, and much more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. For I say unto you, among those that are born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist, but he that is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And all the people that heard him and the publicans justified God and being, being baptized with the baptism of John. This, this passage doesn't connect culturally with us real well. We can translate the words, but the, the metaphors and what he's saying don't translate because our context is different. And that's okay. It just means that we need a little more work. So... What I'm going to do is take a little bit of liberty and try to translate it culturally and try to provoke the feeling that Jesus is trying to provoke. Because we, I think we read Scripture too dry sometimes. I think we get this nice, this nice formal King James language and we just read the words and we're like, oh, isn't this wonderful? And, and we, we miss the point because it just doesn't connect. You know what I mean? I'm not being critical, I'm just saying it's the way it is. We're, we're a little too formal. And we forget Jesus cried, Jesus laughed, Jesus got mad. And we read that out of it and, and we miss something. So I think Jesus is, is being a little colorful here and I want to add the color back in. What'd you go up the mountains to see? A bunch of pine trees blowing in the breeze? Rabbits? Squirrels? Deer? Rocks and dirt? What'd you go to see? People living a life of luxury? Wearing fancy clothes? Going to dinner parties? I mean, you'd be better off going to Birmingham or New York if you want to see that. So what did you go to see? A preacher at a camp meeting? Oh, way more than a preacher. Get the feeling? I just changed the situation. It's basically the same thing. And then he says, no, he's more, way more than a preacher. Way more than a prophet. He's the one that was the voice crying in the wilderness to prepare the way of the Lord. 
When he asks, am I the Messiah? Yes, I am. He is who he claimed to be. He's exactly who he claimed to be. And that makes me who he said I am. And in fact, there's never been a greater prophet. There's never been a greater man of God ever than John the Baptist. Now think about what that means. Was Moses a prophet? John's greater than Moses. That's saying something, especially to the Jews. John's greater than Abraham. John's greater than David. John's greater than Samuel. John's greater than Elijah. Go to Hebrews 11 and the list of all these heroes of the faith. John's greater than all of them. How's that work? Why? I think Hebrews 11 is actually the key. All these died in faith, not having seen the promise. John saw the promise. They point way ahead and say somewhere out there is a, there's, there's this promised seed of Abraham. Somewhere out there, there's the son of David that will sit on the throne forever. John says, it's him. He's right here. John's greater than all of them. But John's not in the kingdom. John doesn't understand. The least one who's actually in the kingdom is greater than the greatest one that points ahead to the kingdom. It's a contrast in Old and New Covenant. So how does this apply to us today? Is it just Old and New Covenant? We don't need to worry about that anymore? A nice history lesson, preacher, but what's that got to do with me? Do you think we have preachers out there today that point to Jesus as the Messiah, believe that He is the Messiah, and proclaim Him as the Messiah? And yet, they are in jail, like John was, and they're not walking in the freedom that Christ brought because they expect something other than what He came to give? There's a lot of them. You know how I know? Because I go to seminary, (laughs) and I hear them argue about it all the time. And they can't all be right about what Jesus came to do because they're arguing with each other ferociously about what exactly it means. Be careful who you follow. They might point you to Jesus, and that's a good thing. And I don't mean to knock those guys any more than Jesus was knocking John. But it's better to follow Jesus than just the one who's pointing to Jesus. You've got to be careful who we follow. Jesus goes on to make an explicit comparison between himself and John. Contrast is probably a better word. And this is really the heart of where I want to take us today. This is really what's going to apply to us directly. Verse 31. The Lord said, Whereunto then shall I liken the men of this generation? And to what are they like? They are like unto children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another and saying, We've piped unto you and you have not danced. We have mourned to you and you have not wept. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say, He hath the devil. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a wine-bibber, a friend of publicans and sinners. But wisdom is justified of all our children. Again, culturally, this doesn't connect, so let me, let me take just a little bit of liberty to help us get the feel. Take children who are, eh, say, 6 to 10. Young enough that they're not too serious yet, but old enough that they can be a little bit sophisticated, right? What kind of things do they play? House? School? 
trucks, tractors, right? School teachers, yeah. Um, doctor? What do all these things have in common? They're imitating adults. They play adult behavior, right? We go buy them little toy sets for Christmas that are, you know, here's a career or some kind of adult activity. Tools like Dad or Papa's or whatever, right? Dolls so they can take care of a baby. They're imitating adult behavior. That's how kids play, and it's how they learn, right? It's been that way since the dawn of time. So what are these kids playing? Well, what are the most significant events in a person's life? That are you born? That are you die? And probably your wedding, right? And the community tends to take part in these events to some extent. Celebrate with the family and so forth or mourn with the family and participate. And it was even more that way in their time than ours. I mean, if there's a wedding in town, the whole town is invited, not just the close friends of the family. Everybody's showing up. It's a whole town event. Same thing for a funeral. Everybody participates, right? So what are these kids doing? Hey, guys, let's play. Let's play. Let's play wedding. Let's play wedding. Let's dance. Let's play wedding. I don't want to play wedding. I'm not dancing. Okay. You're not in the mood for that? Fine. Let's play funeral then. Let's play funeral. We're so sad that he died. No, I'm not crying. I'm not playing funeral. You won't be happy. You won't be sad. You just don't want to play. That's it. They just didn't want to play. Didn't matter how God tried to reach out to them. They weren't going to play. That's what Jesus is accusing them. You're like spoiled children that want it your way. And you're not going to play with anybody else. No matter what God tries to do. And He has tried everything. You're not going to respond. You can't be pleased. God sent John and He sent Jesus. He sent John as the culmination of the Old Covenant. John lives out in the desert, separate, just like Israel was separate, right? God calls Israel out of Egypt, says you're to be different. You're to be very different. You're to be visibly different. John was different, all right. He didn't eat bread and drink wine. He ate locusts and wild honey. He ate bugs. He didn't wear nice clothes. He wore camel hair. I mean, think about it like wearing a wool blanket. Real coarse, heavy. Not comfortable at all. And he lived out in the desert, away from everybody else. And he's the crazy guy, and they said so. He is a demon. He's crazy. Just like people looked at Israel and said, y'all are crazy. What do you mean you don't work one day a week? What do you mean you won't eat pork? Y'all are weird. And it really didn't work. Probably was partly due to Israel failing. So then Jesus comes. Totally different approach. Jesus comes into the towns. Jesus goes to the weddings and the funerals and celebrates with them at the weddings like in Cana and mourns with them at the funerals and, well, raises the dead too. He dressed nice. Matter of fact, his undergarment was valuable enough that it was worth gambling over rather than cutting into pieces. Right? He wore nice clothes. He went to dinner parties, eating bread and drinking wine. Enough so that he was called a glutton and a drunk. Not that he was, but he sure got accused of it. 
What's God got to do to get through to people? What's He got to do? They're as foolish as these children that can't be pleased. If they were wise, as Jesus closes this, if they were children of wisdom, wisdom would be shown to be right by the actions of her children. But they're not. They're children of fools. And their actions show this foolishness. So how does that apply to us? A couple ways. You've heard me say it before. We should try every single way we can to share the gospel. Within the bounds of you know legality, morality, I mean, I'm, I'm not saying absolutely everything, right? Jesus didn't do absolutely everything. He wasn't a drunk. He didn't sin, and we shouldn't either. But he didn't worry much about his reputation. If God tried everything from one extreme to the other, shouldn't we be willing to do whatever it takes? And we've seen this in Paul, right? Paul says, I'm all things to all men. When I'm with Jews, I'm going to obey the law. I'm going to be like a Jew so I can get through to the Jews. When I'm with the Gentiles, man, I'm going to eat a ham sandwich. I'm not worried about the law. I'm going to be like one not under the law to reach those not under the law. I'm all things to all men that by all means I may win some. And we see him do this in example in the various ways he preached. I guess what I'm saying is we shouldn't reject any method of sharing the gospel that's not immorally illegal, so forth. It's worth a try, right? It's not necessarily to say that every one of us has to do every method, but it's worth a try. Second, and my main point, is that Jesus is pointing to what we should be doing. He's making a contrast between the Old Covenant and the New. The Old Covenant was, my people are so different that you're going to see this huge difference. And they're to remain separate so they don't get contaminated. Didn't work out. Gentiles weren't drawn, but largely because God's people's hearts weren't changed. Now under the New Covenant, the hearts changed. We're actually under the King, individually and internally. I am part of the Kingdom because He is my King. And now I go as His ambassador into the world not come over here to be separate from the world so I don't get contaminated. Isn't that what Paul said? We're to be ambassadors for Christ? Ambassadors don't stay in their home country. John represents the old way of doing things, being separate, being distinct, staying away from that so I don't get contaminated by it. Jesus' approach was different. And Jesus is the one we're supposed to be imitating. Jesus went out into the world. Enough so that he got accused of being one of the world. Jesus went where they were, did enough of what they did to be accepted, but was still very different because he loved. And they knew he was different. But he went out and was one of them. He came from heaven to become one of us. And that's what he asks us to do. See, plenty of folks who didn't go out to see John received the message from Jesus. And those who did go out to see John and understood the message still received the message from Jesus. And those who weren't going to hear it either way, it didn't really matter. So let me ask you this, which is more effective in our world? Going off in our own little world, doing our own little thing that's so different from everybody else that they think we're nuts, and staying separate so we don't get contaminated? Or is it more effective 
to go into the world and make disciples like Jesus told us to. That's the hard part of this message. We like to sit in our churches and say, we're going to be different, we're going to be special, and if they want the gospel, they can come here and get it. But that's not what Jesus told us to do. And it's not what Jesus did. To wrap it up, and it's going to be a little bit of a long wrap-up, because I'm going to get real specific here. I'm going to go from preaching to meddling and step on some toes. This relates exactly to what I've said about the church. And this is the part where I'm stepping on toes yet. But it relates exactly to what we've been talking about, right? Because if what we're doing here isn't relevant to them out there, they're never going to hear it. But even more than that, it applies individually. And the next verse from the passage you read in Hebrews this morning is one I've cited many, many times. Forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. And what's the purpose of that? To provoke one another to love and good works. What we do in here should be prompting us to go out there, live lives that show the character of Christ, but go out there in the world where they don't know Him so that they can hear the Gospel. Not for us to stay separated so that they never hear unless they come here. Right? We should be pushing each other to do it. And once again, I'm not telling you I have all the answers. I'm not telling you authoritatively from the pulpit, this is what this church needs to do. I'm telling you, I see biblically the criteria to evaluate what we need to be doing, and then we need to sit down and have a conversation about how that works out. And it's going to be different in different churches, and it's going to be different in different contexts. But what does that look like individually? This is where I'm going to go to Madeline and Stepping on Toes. It's going to be different for each one of us. It's going to depend on the context he's put each one of us in. And I can't speak from up here authoritatively on that any more than I can speak about the whole church. Because, quite frankly, I don't know the situations you face every day. I don't know the ones you face every day. I don't know the ones you face every day. And so I can't tell you, well, this is what you need to do in your life to apply this, right? It's going to be different because you're in a different place. You have different opportunities. But what I can do is tell you how it applies to me. And lay the principles out. And tell you, look, we need to talk to the Holy Spirit to guide us into truth and show us what to do. Right? So, so some details modified slightly to, to hide the identity of those involved, as I should. Um, but the gist of the story is a true story that's ongoing right now. A while back, I ran into a lady that needed some help. She was kind of in kind of a hard spot. For me to help her wasn't a big thing. She needed to jump. Something many of us have done many times, right? It's not that hard to jumpstart somebody. You pull out the jumper cables and do it, right? It doesn't really cost me anything but a little time. I was happy to help. As we're getting hooked up, she explains to me, you know, the battery's not completely dead. It's just weak. I know I need a new battery. It's just not enough, quite enough to start the car, but I can't afford a new battery right now. We've fallen on kind of tough times recently, and it's a temporary thing, but I just don't have the money. Hopefully, we'll get that taken care of soon. And she told me a little of the story. And I'm like, okay, yeah, it sounds, sounds tough. I hope things work out for you. Got a, got a car started, and I left. And I told Shannon what, was, what had happened, and she said, so you bought her a battery, right? This is not a success story for the preacher to tell you how great I am. I messed up. I missed an opportunity. It's not that I didn't want to. It's that I didn't see it. 
because I'm still learning to, to, to do this, okay? I'm not, I'm not trying to tell you I'm better than anybody. But when she told me that, I went, you're right, I missed an opportunity. That's exactly what I was supposed to do. It didn't take even a second for me to go, ooh, my bad. So I went back. Gave her some money, said, here, go buy a battery. Your car's running, take it to the store, go buy one right now. And she's like, thank you very much, tears. Fast forward a little while. Her husband needs similar kind of help. Again, I won't go into details, but same, same kind of basic thing. Something real quick and easy, cost me nothing, just, just a few minutes of my time. And so as I'm helping him out, we were talking, and he says, you're the one that gave my wife the money for the battery, right? He, he knew. I said, yes, sir, I am. And he said, thank you. Well, I'll pay you back as soon as I can. And I said, well, you're welcome, but I didn't give you a loan. That wasn't my intent. Not what I'm trying to do. If you think you need to pay me back just because you want to, great, but I'm never going to think of it again. That wasn't the point. And he said, well, thank you. Not a lot of folks will do that. And I paused. It was a little awkward for a second. Because again, I'm still learning how to do this. But God showed me, you have an opportunity now. Don't mess it up twice. And I said, I just know what Jesus did for me and how much He gave for me. And the least I can do is share that kind of love with somebody else who's in need. And He stopped for a second. He looked at me and said, there's not very many people around like that anymore. And it broke my heart. Why? What if he's right? What if there really aren't very many people around like that anymore? Churches all over Clay County are full of people, but there's not very many of them that will share the love of Jesus. There's not very many people like that anymore who will say, I know what Jesus did for me and let me share his love with you means there's a lot of people sitting in churches that think they're on the narrow path that leads to life, that are on the wide road that leads to destruction. And God willing, we'll talk more about that next week in the parable of the sower in the next chapter in Luke. But the other part is, even if he's wrong, and that's just his perception, if the world around us sees us as not willing to share the love of Jesus, we have failed, brothers and sisters. The church is failing. We're not carrying out the mission. We're not sharing the gospel with the world around us. And I believe that's because we're sitting here saying we don't want to be contaminated by that out there rather than going out there. And this story is not over. I've still got work to do. I don't need to leave it at that and say, well, I gave him the good news. He can come to church and hear the rest if he wants to. I need to swing by his house and catch him outside sitting on the porch, hanging out drinking a beer, or working on his car, or working on his house or something. And I need to stop and hang out with him and talk to him and work on his car with him and, and whatever, right? The thing doesn't matter. The question is, do I need to worry about you driving by and seeing me standing there next to a case of Budweiser on his porch? Did Jesus worry about that? We worry too much about our own reputations and not enough about what Jesus came to do. And that's hard. It's hard for me to say it. It's even harder for me to do it. 
and I hate to harp on alcohol because I know then that sounds like, okay, this is a sermon about alcohol. And that's going to really stir up a hornet's nest. But that's because that's a really live issue here in the last dry county in Alabama. And it's in the text. And I'd be irresponsible if I didn't bring it up, right? I'm not saying you have to drink to be like Jesus. I'm not suggesting we put a keg in the fellowship hall. At all. I'm certainly not suggesting we need to all go be drunk. Jesus wasn't, okay? But another example is probably best to tell you what I am saying. Not long ago, I heard somebody bragging about how they preserved their witness by refusing to go to the wedding of a family member because they were going to serve alcohol at the reception. And I don't need to be around that, and so I'm, I'm preserving my witness. Is that what Jesus did? That's what I'm saying. The witness that preserves is not the witness of the gospel. But that's the hypocrisy that the world sees in the church. And they'll tell you quick that the church is full of hypocrites. That's my point. So let's broaden it out from that issue. When's the last time you talked to someone of another race or nationality about their experience in their culture, in their life, and how the gospel relates to them? When's the last time you sat down to dinner with a gay couple and shared in their life? With them knowing that you don't support their lifestyle. Don't get me wrong. I'm not preaching lawlessness. And if you say, well, you know, I'm, I'm too old for that. I talked to a 73-year-old not too long ago. He told me a story about it doing exactly that. Sitting down with two young ladies and they're saying, so do you think I'm going to hell because I'm gay? He's like, look, I just know Jesus loves you. And they were hanging out and having dinner. You can do it too. When's the last time you had teenagers in your home that were questioning their sexuality and trying to work through these things? But they know whether you approve of what they're doing or not, they can come to your house and get the love they're not getting at home. There's some examples. They're from my life. A lot of those things were a long time ago and I don't do enough of them now. I'm not saying you have to do any of those specifically and certainly not all of them. I'm saying what's God called you to do. What situation has God put you in? And I, and I know for those of us who are retired, it's tougher because we're not in the workplace out in the world anymore. But what we got to do is say, God, how do you want me to do the Great Commission? How do you want me to go make disciples based on where you've put me? So as I've done many times lately, let's pray. Let's ask the Holy Spirit to give us wisdom in how to do that. God, I love you. I thank You for Your Word. I thank You for being so clear in what Jesus came to do. For being so clear in what we're to do to follow Him. God, I'm sorry where I've failed. I'm sorry for where I've done things contrary to that and called it Christianity. And I'm sorry for where, yes, I've even taught others to do the same. God, give us wisdom. There's not a whole lot of tax collectors around here for us to go to their houses for dinner. So obviously we can't do exactly what Jesus did. But Lord, show us in the situation that we're in, in our world, in our culture, in Clay County in 2022, 
How we're to be in the world, but not of the world. How we're to take the Gospel out there and not just tell them they can come here if they want it. Show us where we're wrapped up in our own self-righteousness and that interferes with us sharing the Gospel. God, most of all, I pray that You give us Your heart. The heart of the Father who wants the prodigal to come home rather than the heart of the jealous older brother. Help us to see the people in the world through Your eyes as people You created, loved, and died for rather than as those people out there. Give us wisdom. Guide us into all truth. Show us what you would have us to do so we can obey. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.